If you have a Bible with you this morning, you might like to turn to the book of Genesis. Whether it's a printed version or an electronic version, it will be on the screen for you. And whilst you're doing that, I'd like to tell you about an inter-schoolboy running race that I read about a couple of weeks ago. In this particular race, the race official called out, on your mark, get set, and then fired the starting pistol. And of course, they all took off. But one particular runner sprang out to the lead, held the lead for the entire race, and finished the race, breaking the state record. And only a few of the runners even bothered to finish when they saw that he was so far ahead, they thought, why bother? And they just pulled out of the race, completely dropping out. And as the field crew were bringing on the hurdles for the next for the next race, one of the judges yelled out, get those hurdles out of the way. Look, the race is not over yet, and pointed. And around the turn came this last runner, panting and staggering. And apparently the crowd stood as they watched the solitary runner run the last 100 metres or so, crossing the line, crashing over it and grinding his face into the hard track. One of the judges ran over to the boy, turned him on his back, took out his handkerchief and started wiping the blood from his face and said, son, why didn't you drop out? What were you in the race for anyway? Looking at him, he could see he hadn't done much running. Between gasps, the boy explained that the school in actual fact did have a good mile runner. But he had taken ill some days earlier, and the coach had promised to have one boy in every race, and he had been asked to run the mile. Well then, he said, why didn't you drop out when you saw that you couldn't win, that you'd lost? And the boy answered, Judge, they didn't send me here to quit, and they didn't necessarily send me here to win. They sent me here to run this mile, and I ran it. Amazing. That schoolboy, that schoolboy faithfully completed what the coach had promised that someone would do. And the truth is, faithfulness and being faithful is a quality we must all have. Yet when this is all wrapped up, and time is no more, and we are standing before him, the one to whom we must give an account of our lives, you know, one of the qualities he's going to look for in our lives is that of faithfulness. And he will say, well done, good, and faithful servant. And faithfulness isn't something that we do, it's something that we are. As Charles Neiman said, you see, you don't do good, you are good. You don't do faithful, you are faithful. You don't do service, you are a servant. Well done, good, and faithful. It's who we are on the inside that will count. When you look through Scripture, in my mind, there's one person that stands out as being uh, faithful under extreme circumstances. And that's a, a young boy and a man by the name of Joseph. And I'd like to read a little bit about him this morning from Genesis 39. Now, the background to this before we get to it is that Joseph is the 11th son of a man whose name is Jacob. And he's actually the favored one. And he's the one that we've got the uh, musical, the Technicolor Dreamcoat and all that. Some might have seen that. But he's, he's got this nice coat. His father favors him. And he's known to be favored by the rest of his brothers. This causes them to be somewhat jealous, as you could imagine. And uh, so they trap him and throw him in a pit and uh, sell him to some traveling traders. And it turns out he gets trafficked into slavery into Egypt. And he ends up uh, a slave in the home of a man whose name is Potiphar. Now, the Lord was with Joseph and called every, caused everything that he did for Potiphar to prosper. And uh, Potiphar was very pleased with uh, Joseph's efforts, so put him in charge of everything. Let's pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 39 of the book of Genesis. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. 
with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, hands up those who would love to have a life like that. All you're worried about is what's for lunch. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be absolutely awesome? Well, that was Potiphar's position because of Joseph working for him. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, very much like Paul Cargill. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. And then, sorry, then how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. And one day he went into the house to attend to his duties. None of the household servants were inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left the cloak in his hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left the cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called to the household servants. Look, she said, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. This Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all that was, uh, who were held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay. Now in this passage of scripture, we see the faithfulness of Joseph. He remains faithful to God and to himself in the face of some pretty major challenges, the sort of challenges that many of us would crumble under. Reality is we face challenges like this today. Temptation, trial, trouble, tragedy. They're all part of life, the side of the grave. And, and Joseph's life teaches us how to remain faithful and what comes and what can come to a life of a person who is faithful and the benefits that come from that. And that's what I want to look at this morning. He's a great example to follow because he remained faithful. And the reward that follows from his faithful life is something that we could do to emulate. So the first thing he was is he was faithful in the midst of temptation. Faithful in the midst of temptation. Now t- temptation has been part of the human experience ever since Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And even Jesus was tempted when he walked here on earth. But he was the only one to successfully resist every time. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard Ed Delph speak of the temptations that Jesus faced. Now here in Genesis 39, we see Joseph caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. She begins to flirt with him, and ultimately she tried to get Joseph to sleep with her. He refused, but she persisted. And finally, one day when Joseph came into the house and she was waiting for him, she grabbed his cloak and tried to persuade him to sleep with her whilst all the other servants in Potiphar were out of the home. Joseph slipped out of her grasp, you can just see it now, and and, in so doing, shed his cloak and he ran from her, and she was left holding it. Let's, Let's look at this for a minute. The offer here was for sex, pure and simple. No strings attached. A one-off counter. No one would know. 
She wasn't exactly going to tell her husband afterwards, was she? He, in all probability, could have got away with it. And he was a young man. He would have had hormones racing around all over the show. One commentator has said he probably had enough testosterone in his body to jumpstart a dead elephant. <laughs> Sexual temptation is so powerful because it's a deceptive offer for immediate pleasure, often without penalty. You know, temptation is won and lost within a very few seconds. The first few seconds, in fact. That's the opportunity to resist. And if we dwell on it, we are more likely to succumb. You think of King David for a moment in 2 Samuel chapter 11, when he was walking on the rooftop of his palace and he looked down and saw Bathsheba taking a bath. Now, he had a choice to make. He could practice what is referred to as eye bounce, dart his eyes away, and then leave. Or he could prolong the look and send for her. Sadly, he did the latter, and the rest is history. If we don't resist at the beginning, it can develop into a major problem. You know, a tempting thought begins as a spark and then turns into a flame, and before long, a full-on fire. And once yielded, we are weakened to the next temptation. And looking, looking at the situation that Joseph faced, it's interesting to note that commentators actually say that Joseph's wife was not unattractive. And this temptation was to fulfill a natural need. I mean, God made us sexual beings. Many believe it's okay to fulfill our sexual uh, needs in any fashion we choose, as long as others don't get hurt. But God has a different view. You know, any sexual expression outside the confines of marriage is sexual immorality or fornication, which is a word we don't tend to use today. So it's either that or it's adultery. In either way, it is sin. And Joseph saw it as such, and that's the reason why he said, no. And then we went on to describe it as something against God. He said, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Then Joseph's very wise response was to run from her presence, to flee from the temptation. Now, Joseph's handling of the situation directly contrasts the full-hardy uh, actions of a simple man we read about in the book of Proverbs, chapter 7. And in Proverbs, chapter 7, Solomon tells us that he sees a fool walking along the road towards an adulterous house. And she comes out, and uh, she starts to speak to him. In fact, she takes hold of him and begins to kiss him. Now, rather than run from that, he remains and listens to what she says. In her persuasive words, the Bible says, she led him astray, she seduced him with her smooth talk. And it goes on to say this young man followed her like an ox to the slaughterhouse, little knowing that it will cost him his life. But Joseph was interested more than just gratifying his sinful nature. He was determined to be faithful to God. This temptation came when he was enjoying great success. Let's face it, he was promoted to top position in pot of his house. He was the king of the pile, you know, if you like. He might have thought, why not? I can do no wrong. Why, shouldn't I enjoy some of the fruit of my labors? but not Joseph. It's important to realize that we're very vulnerable, more vulnerable really to temptation when we've just enjoyed great success. We seem to feel that we can do anything. And in those moments, temptation and failure are very real. Why else did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You know, and temptation can come to us in many ways. It's not just a sexual area. Temptations around money, around power, around greed, stretching the truth, you name it. And remember, temptation is not sin. As I said earlier, Jesus was tempted in the same ways that you and I are, but was without sin because he said no to it. He, did not, he resisted it each time and didn't yield to it. It's the yielding that crosses the line. And there's always a way out of temptation. 
And God himself never tempts us. In fact, there's a couple of verses on the screen to look at from Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond which you can bear, that which you can bear at least. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out that you may endure it. And in James chapter 1, James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But every person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And it seems the reason Joseph was able to remain faithful in the midst of Potiphar's wife's advances was that he saw sin for what it really was. It wasn't a moment of pleasure, but it was something against God. And King David, when he came to that understanding, had that revelation ultimately after having committed adultery with Bathsheba. He said this in Psalm 51, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we want to successfully navigate temptation. We've got to see it for what it is. See sin for what it is. Well, what happens when we do yield to temptation? What happens when we don't resist and in a moment of weakness we fold? Often that can be when we are what is known as halt, H-A-L-T, when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we are lonely, and when we are tired. It's considered by many that those are the times we're more vulnerable to temptation than any other. It's when we're susceptible. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful for the mercy and the grace of God. Are you? Yeah, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the standard that God has. And if anyone says they haven't sinned, they're actually making him out to be a liar. But when sin abounds, grace abounds even more. His grace covers our sin because of the cross. And because of the cross, God sees us as as sinless. Does that mean that we should go on sinning and think, well, grace is going to cover? (laughs) Doesn't matter, does it? Well, Paul addresses that in Romans 6. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So we're not to just think, oh, well, grace covers. No, no, no. We've died to sin. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And if we're sin, we only need to turn from our sin. Uh, repent, which basically means we're walking in a situation in this direction, and our thinking is this way, and repentance is basically a change of mind that results in an outward turning around and heading off in the other direction. Whereas I used to do this, I now do this. Whereas I used to think this, I now do this. Whereas I used to uh, say these things, I now do these. And so I've turned around, I'm repenting. So all we're going to do is repent, turn around, and head off in the other direction. Because we have an advocate with the Father. One who died in our place, who paid the price for our sin that enabled the power of that repentance to see us set free from the power of sin. We need only confess it, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, purifies us from all unrighteousness, from all sin, and that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is wonderful news. Man, that is great. There is no condemnation. No condemnation. Not just a little bit. None. None at all. When Jesus looks at you, when God sees you, he sees you washed, completely cleansed from sin because of the cross. Because we've asked for forgiveness and we've forsaken that and availed ourselves of the finished work of the cross. Are you excited about that? Are you happy about that? Are you pleased? How about you tell your face about it? It's good, eh? 
Yeah, sometimes when we've been in church long enough, sometimes, oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah, I'll get it. But, man, sometimes we need to tell our hearts again, whoa, I'm cleansed. That means if... It's awesome. Lamentations 3 tells us this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. It's a new day today. And if you fouled up yesterday, then his grace is towards you today. His mercies are new. Weeping at night, joy in the morning. His mercy, it's a new day. It's a new day to begin living. It's a new day to begin living. It's a new day to begin living for him. It's a new day to forsake that which is the past and begin to walk in the new way of living under the blood of the Lord. Under the, whew, it's good. I think it's good. This is so good, I'm even going to download this. Because <clears throat> I need to hear it. I need to hear it. I mean, I was raised in the church since I was this high. I've been in the church all my life, and it's so easy for this to sort of just be, oh, yeah, okay, Paul, I get it. Come on, can we move on? Can we have some meat? Isn't that the essence of the gospel? The cross? His mercy and grace towards us is with us this day. It's a new day. There's no condemnation. So if we've done stuff we shouldn't have done, if we've said stuff we shouldn't have said, if we've thought stuff we shouldn't have thought... His precious blood covers that and, for, and as we forsake it and ask for forgiveness and accept the work of the cross, hallelujah, his mercy and grace is poured over our lives and we're set free to live again, to pick ourselves up and to move on, to pick ourselves up and to move on. So just picture yourself, picking yourself up and moving on. So Joseph remained faithful in the face of temptation, even though it meant more difficulties for him. He ends up in prison as a result. The second thing, he remained faithful in the midst of trouble. Now, having been scorned, Potiphar's wife then attempts to get back at Joseph. I'll get him back for rejecting me. I'll get him back. She holds on to his cloak until her husband comes home. We read in verse 17, she tells him, the Hebrew slave that you brought us came to make sport of me. In other words, it could be said, it's your fault. It's your fault. Now, Potiphar becomes angry. We're not sure why Potiphar is angry. Maybe he's angry at Joseph because he did this. He believes his wife. Maybe he's angry at his wife. Because he knew her to be a wayward woman. Maybe this is not the first time it's happened in his home. Maybe he's angry at himself that he hadn't confronted her in the past because he knows what she was like. And as a consequence now, he's going to have to get rid of Potter, uh, Joseph. And that means all his businesses, etc., etc., aren't going to be as prosperous anymore because Joseph isn't going to be looking over it. We don't know the reason for his anger, but he is angry. And as a result of this, Joseph ends up before the judge and is thrown into prison. But surely Potiphar could see the flaw in her account. I mean, why would Joseph leave his cloak behind? Surely Joseph had watched enough crime shows on TV to know that's incriminating evidence. It's full of his DNA, you know. Hadn't Joseph already proven himself to have been faithful in everything he had done? Well, as you can imagine, being cast into prison isn't the most exciting. It's not like the prison they're building in Auckland at hundreds of millions of dollars where you have touchy-feely gardens and all sorts of things. This is, this, it says in Psalm 105 that... Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, shouldn't say that. Um, in, in Psalm 105, it said that Joseph's feet were in shackles and his neck was in irons. So you could just see the way he was. His plight was not pleasant at all. Now think about Joseph for a minute. He had been faithful, a servant of Potiphar, and had resisted committing sexual adultery with a woman who had thrown herself at him day after day after day. Falsely accused, thrown into prison, what do you do? Now I don't know about you, but I would find it very difficult to resist the temptation to rattle the bars and say, hey, get me out of here, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Get me out of here, it's not fair. 
Not Joseph, it would appear. There's no account or no record of him opening his mouth, very much like Jesus. When Jesus was led to the cross, in Isaiah 53, it said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Joseph took what came at him, it would appear without protest, faithfully and with grace. Now please hear me. I'm not saying that whenever you're slandered or needing to defend yourself that you shouldn't. You can. And there will be times that we will be attacked and times that we are misunderstood. But when those times come, we have to entrust ourselves to the Lord, who is faithful and knows the truth, and trust him for the outcome. Know this. We aren't there yet. He is still working out his glorious plan in our lives, and I'm thankful for that. We're only partway through. We haven't finished yet as it was for Joseph in prison. God hadn't finished yet. He had a bigger plan. And in his book, uh, Talking to My Father, Ray Steadman tells the story of a missionary couple who served abroad for many years, some time ago, and uh, they eventually returned to the United States because of health reasons. And uh, they happened to be on the same boat that former President Teddy Roosevelt was on after he had returned from a big game hunt. And when their ship docked in New York, the former president received an exceptional homecoming. Well, the missionary couple, of course, there was a lot more significant work, you would agree. But there was no crowd to meet them. And the man told his wife how discouraged and overlooked he felt. And she said, why don't you go into the bedroom and tell the Lord about that? He did, and he came out a short moment later or two, and his attitude changed completely about the whole thing. And he said, the Lord settled it with me in here by showing me that we aren't home yet that they too would receive a homecoming one day. But there wouldn't be crowds greeting them, but the Lord himself who would be saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And in trials, we have to realize we aren't finished yet. And it's easy to, at times to get mad, angry, and want to quit. And as good as it seems at that time, it may not be the best option. You see, the valleys are not the time to decide the direction of our lives. Like the schoolboy in the running race I told you about earlier, we've just got to keep faithful and put one foot in front of the other, keep one foot in front of the other, and in so doing, we'll prove ourselves to be faithful. And that's what Joseph did. He continued. He continued to operate as he had in the in pot of his house. He then did it in the prison, and he served the prison warden. And because of the Lord's favor on his life and Joseph's faithfulness in life, it wasn't too long before he was running the place. And uh, the truth is that there will be times when life throws us a curveball, when people disappoint. When situations and circumstances are beyond our control and get out of hand and don't go the way we would want them to and difficulties stack up before us and we can't see our way ahead. It shouldn't surprise us because the Bible tells us that life will be full of trouble. Job said in Job chapter 14, how frail is humanity, how short is life, how full of trouble. And Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. So when that happens, the temptation is to throw our hands in the air and to give up, and even give up on God. And we can think, what's the use of following God? I've been faithful. I've been faithful. And look, what's I've just, given, I've just got nothing but trouble. The enemy will try to discourage us to the point where we want to drop out of the race altogether. When others get ahead and we don't, when they succeed and we aren't, when others seem to touch anything and it turns to gold for them, but it's not happening for me. 
you know, when others are, 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 are really blessed and things are going for, they're going for it and things are really happening for them and you think, God, they're not even Christians, they don't even love the Lord and here am I. Lord, what, what, how come it's not happening for me? Surely, we talk about the resources of heaven, surely it should be happening for me. You know, Asaph, the psalmist, struggled with this too, and he wrote about it in Psalm 73. He says, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked and how they seemed to be getting ahead and then compared it to his lot, he almost came unstuck. In verse 13, he said, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. It says he almost lost his footing until he spent time in the sanctuary, he went into the sanctuary, sought the Lord, and the Lord gave him a revelation of their eternal destiny, and then showed him how his grace was towards him, his guiding hand, his hand of providence, etc., in his life, and that one day when he passed away, he'd go to be with him. You see, in the midst of difficulty, there will be many voices calling us to pull out of the race, to quit, to give up. We have to keep looking at Jesus, even when it appears it's not paying off. We have to keep praying, even when we don't see the answer to our prayer. Keep coming to church, even when we don't appear to be getting anything out of it. And keep praising him, even if we have to do that through the tears. The Lord wants us to remain faithful. And the life of Joseph that he lived serves as an example of that to us. To do just that, to be faithful. God knew what he was doing in Joseph's life. And Joseph remained faithful. The Lord outworked his glorious plan. And if you know the story, you know he's finally released from prison. He's elevated to the highest place in the land. And in so doing, we see the fulfillment of his dream that he had had as a child. It's well worth a read this week as part of your Bible reading from Genesis chapter 37 right through to the end of the book, chapter 50. And you'll see God used him not only to save his own family, but the known world from famine. It's a fantastic story. But when you think about it, why would the Holy Spirit inspire Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, to devote so much time to record that which happened in Joseph's life? I mean, 50 chapters of Genesis, 14 of which are about Joseph. You could argue Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's about the beginning of everything. We've got the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and the serpent coming, and the fall, and we've got uh, the flood, and Noah, and, and uh, the Tower of Babel, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the, in the book of Genesis. You know, the, the father of our faith, Abraham, and all his life, and Jacob, and, and, and Isaac, etc. So, and then Joseph. And why so much of this particular book about Joseph and his trials and his life? more so than the others. You know, I think it's simply because it's a story that we can identify with and with so many ways because it reflects the reality of life for us. You know, we start out with opportunities ahead of us, with so much potential and with dreams, and then life happens. And in spite of that, Joseph's life shows us that we can live a life of significance as we remain faithful in the midst of temptation and trial and difficulty and trouble and the things that life throws at us. Many years ago, fishing for codfish in the northeast of the United States became a very lucrative business. The fishing industry just recognized there's a great market for codfish across the entire country. But they had a problem with distribution. At first, they simply caught the fish and froze it and shipped it. When it got to the other side of the country, the codfish, having been frozen, was tasteless. So they decided to ship it in fresh tanks full of fresh seawater. But the problem only got worse, because when it got there, the fish had been inactive in the tank, and they were soft and mushy, as well as having lost their taste. Finally, someone came up with the idea, why not put some catfish in the tank with the codfish as it shipped across the states? Now, catfish are a natural enemy to codfish. So as the tank 
travelled across the country, the codfish had to stay alert and active on the lookout for catfish. You think, you've got problems. <laughs> Amazingly, when the tank arrived at its destination, the codfish were fresh and tasty as much as they had been in the northeast. Like catfish, the temptations and trials of life that we face are there for a purpose. They present a challenge to us to strengthen us and to sharpen us, to keep us fresh, to keep us active and growing. Sure, at times in our lives, it can feel like we've got a great white shark in our tank and not a catfish. But just remember, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that we're not going to face anything that together with him we can't handle. We can't quit, can't give up, and can't yield. And like Joseph, there's opportunity for promotion in the trials and the temptations of life. So let's not get impatient. We're still breathing. It's not over yet. And it's not over till he says it is. So let's stay open to God's plan unfolding as it did with Joseph. Let's recognize that God wants to show his grace through our lives in the midst of these times, as he did with Joseph. And remember, God will pull it all together for us, like he did Joseph, as we remain faithful. And as we do, I believe we'll be able to look back on our life and see the guiding providential hand of the Lord in our lives through every twist and turn, every temptation, and every trial. Would you please stand with me as we pray and as the team comes back? Thank you, Lord, for your word and the encouragement that it brings to us as we read it. Thank you for Joseph's life and the example that he was of living a faithful life. In the midst of temptation and trouble, help us to stand firm and not be moved. Not to yield, but to resist and keep our eye on you, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray for those today who are struggling with temptation. They may know what it is to draw near to you, to stand firm and to resist. They know what it is to have your grace in their lives, to uh, be strong, to say no, to rise up, to repent, to turn, to walk in a new way, to know you with them, and to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those facing trials and troubles that is overwhelming, Father, I ask that as they draw aside with you, you strengthen them to remain faithful, that, Lord, you'd help them in the midst of this, that they would be strong as they trust in you. Thank you that you haven't left us as orphans, but you have poured out your Spirit on us. Your Spirit, you live within us. You said to be with us to the very end of the age. And we thank you for your abiding presence. Thank you that there's nothing that we will face that is beyond our ability because you are with us to strengthen us and to help us. And you said we can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name, amen. I trust that's been a blessing to you. May God bless you all. We're going to continue to worship the Lord.